Morning, everybody. Okay, uh, the fourth word of Jesus, which is, uh, I always find the one that's most, uh, well, I don't know, alarming. Uh, so Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or nai, depending on what you want to pronounce it. Um, okay, I handed out Psalm 22 to you all in a piece of paper. Because I know it's Matthew 27, however, um, we'll spend most of our time in Psalm 22. Uh, uh, a couple, before we do that, though, Marilyn was kind enough to, in the chapter, the author makes reference to an uh, Elbrick Duer woodcut. I try to say it like the German because uh, Krista is not here to correct me. But um, uh, so Marilyn picked, uh, printed out the woodcut. If you guys were wondering what it looked like, where he talks about Mary kissing the feet of Jesus and Jesus kissing uh, this this uh, moment of uh, uh, intimacy between Jesus and. The church. So, if you're wondering, that's. I really debated whether I was going to spend a lot of time on it, but I, I we can if you want. All right. So, a uh, little story time. Back when I first became Lutheran, I attended my first Monday Thursday service. I had never been to one. Never been to a Holy Thursday service. Growing up uh, in the tradition I grew up in, we didn't we didn't do that. Um. So I didn't even know there was such a thing until I uh, attended St. John. So it's a very nice service. It's about the Lord's Supper. It's kind of the night when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And then at the end of the service, where uh, the benediction normally happens, there's no benediction. And at that time, Chuck Brown, this is pre, pre-Peter Savitsky years, um, sang or chanted, this, I, I didn't know what it was at the time, so this song. Well, lo and behold, I mean, it was very powerful because it's got this uh, minor key business where he does it, and uh, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I never knew that growing up. Read my Bible a lot. Thought I knew my Bible. But lo and behold, Jesus' words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. So, I I mean, I I just remember, now the only reason why I bring that up is because there was another member who just became a member last year. I won't say his name because I didn't ask him if I... Because apparently whatever I do goes worldwide. goes on YouTube. (laughs) Apparently there's a video of me singing. Probably shouting more than singing along with the rest of the van. Anyways, so there was a new member, and he, his mind was blown, too, when he attended his first Monday, Thursday service. I never knew that was from Psalm 22. So, all right, so, so uh, long story short, these words are uh, something that I, I, I think about often, about Jesus saying these words and what that means for us. All right, so Psalm 22, uh, 
Which I have the handout. It's just the psalm. Some parts are highlighted and some are italicized just for teaching. But Psalm 22 is characterized as a, a psalm of lament. And there are, there's lots of different psalms that are psalms of lament. Where whoever wrote it, case Psalm 22, King David, or David, say, uh, calls out to God, for help. But at the same time, there's parts of the psalm that sound like he's, he's complaining or he's, he's calling God to question. Like, what is going on? What are you doing? Now, for many of us, that might sound like, hey, we're not supposed to do that with God. Maybe, you know, why, why, you know we, can't, we can't be in that relationship with God. You know, we have to just kind of receive whatever he gives us in faith and know that he's sovereign to take care of everything. Well, that's true, but that's not realistic. I think all of us have feelings and emotions. And we get mad at things and, and we get upset about the way things happen in life. And, you know, and rather, you know what we find out in the Psalms is that uh, the, Bible, you know, the Bible actually agrees with that. And so in Psalm 22, uh, in a lament, so a, the, a lament is just an expression of pain and suffering uh, silence from God, abandonment, or, or, or just, you know, lostness in general. But at the same time, a psalm of lament is a hopeful psalm. That's important. In the, the chapter from uh, the, the book, uh, you get that towards the end of the chapter where he uh, talks about how even Jesus' cry of abandonment is, is filled with hope. It's a hopeful call. And from verse 1 in Psalm 22, how can we tell that, gee, move this. From Psalm 1, verse 1, how do we know that this is actually, there's, there's, even though it's suffering, it's abandonment, it's, uh, there is a hopeful hopeful undertone even within that there's a there's a pronoun involved carol that's right the other aspect too though is in terms of relationship yeah my god or a god my god so this is something that's very important for us to kind of keep in the forefront, even in our own lives, when life, you know, stinks, when life is not, is not as we would like it, is that first, the God that you cry out to is not just a God. He's your God. He's, he's my God. And so that relationship then brings an intimate intimacy towards your lament. You're lamenting to someone who is in relationship to you. And not only that, as Carol said in, in the second part of verse 1, is that um, you're, you're calling to God, like, what, what are you doing? Why are you so far from me? What are you doing? Because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Now, if you know your Old Testament, I think... I, 
Well, I don't know. I did not put it in here. All right, so uh, Exodus chapter, this is kind of the first part where it kind of comes a big deal. Exodus chapter 2, I think it's 25 and 26, in the 20s somewhere. Remember, I don't remember things because it's written down. It said that in chapel. So, it's in Exodus 2, though, before the burning bush. Uh, Israel cries out to God, and God hears them. Israel's calling out to uh, God, the God of the covenant, the God who's made promises to you, the God who will fulfill those promises. Now, that, so that kind of changes the character of, of how we kind of understand that, is that at the same time, you, this, this uh, Psalm 22, you're lamenting, you're calling God into question. You're, you're calling to God into question because this is just not the way that he's promised. And so... From your perspective, he's got to get busy doing what he said he was going to do. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, the, the, the Psalms of Lament are, uh, I think, they're great. They're very helpful for me. Okay. Um, okay, yeah. So, there, it's, uh, it's a t- pain, pain, suffering, darkness, hardship, but at the same time, they're on a deeper level, there's also a, a sense of hope. Now, um, but it's still desperate. And this is another thing, too, is that you know, we have to kind of uh, critically think about the way we feel uh, and the way we express ourselves because sometimes we create false antithesis. Like if I'm desperate for God's helping, maybe I don't believe that he's going to help me. I don't know if that's true. Maybe your desperation is a sign of your belief that you believe that God, God can do and, and will do something. So... I think that's something helpful for us as we kind of maybe spend this next week meditating upon God's word is to think about how Jesus reciting these words can help form our own experience. Whether you know whether we literally say, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me," or some other version of the same thing. Nancy, I think for us as well as throughout the Psalms, whenever these laments, it always goes back to. But we know that you have saved us, you know, they look back at the past and the good things that God has done. And I think that's what helps us, too, because, I, you know, we can look back and think of all the times when God has gotten us out of... Right. Well, and the and thing is, too, as you... So this is the, the part about hope. Hope defines or our, our, uh, forms our lens in which we see things. So as we look towards our past, some of us might say, I don't know if God helped me that much. But fundamentally... The fact that we are in relationship to God, that this God is my God, is the number one great thing that God has done for you. He has joined himself to you in holy baptism. You know, I mean, that is the life changer, and it affects the rest of your life. So when we often look towards things that might be kind of more grandiose, you know, uh, you know, lame, uh, those who were lame are healed and now can walk. Maybe we have to first see that God has joined himself to us as being the great work in our life, the fundamental primary great work, and so that when we always look backwards, that is what we see primarily. And that, that's a good thing. So we always, this is what I'm trying to say, is Nancy's right, we always have something to look back to which is the big deal. And then we can, through that big deal, we can see all these other things that God has done for us.
Of course, if you know your small catechism, which I know we all spend time at night meditating along with our Holy Scripture, uh, the explanation to the first article of the Creed, God has made... What is it, Marilyn? You're right. God has made me and all creatures. Yep. Uh, well, what does that have to do with this, Pastor? Well, it has to do with everything because is that God, when God makes you, He makes you as primary. Meaning, like in your life, as far as your relationship to God, you're the most important person in the world. But He can have that relationship with everybody. So God has made you, you first, primarily you. So everything that you have in life is something from God. And then you go to the second article. I, I um, Come on now. I believe... I'm, I'm still going to start reciting the second article of the Creed. Marilyn, help me with the explanation. Come on. No, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the third article, which I was about to recite. <laughs> Okay, well, regardless, in each of the article, explanation of the articles is uh, this understanding that when it comes to your life, you can't, you, you, you can't worry about other people's lives before your own. And the reality is, is that God has actually taken, your, taken care of your life first before your own, others, from your perspective. And the reason why I say that is because I think one of the, I mean, we're, I'm getting a tangent now, but um, is... Uh, when Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God really forsake him? You know, but the thing is, though, from Jesus' perspective at that moment, does it really matter? Because what does he feel? He feels forsaken. So this is, where, this is where these things are that we have to, so when we see our lives as not really made by God, like maybe God made a mistake, or he doesn't really care about us, he's not really giving us things. It feels that way. But when we look at it through faith, we have to confess something different. So, Jesus on the cross. I, you know, I think he, he feels abandoned, he feels forsaken. Now, for some odd reason, if there was a scenario where he didn't feel any pain or anything, we said, you have a test. Confirmation learned by heart quiz. Does God really forsake you, yes or no? You know, he's going to say no, right? But that, that doesn't really matter for somebody who's suffering. You can't, you can't tell them, hey, stop feeling that way. I mean, just think, about, just think about Jesus, right? Would you go to Jesus on the cross and say, hey, man, don't worry about it. God didn't really forsake you. <laughs> just try a little hard, Jesus. You'll be fine. You can get through this, no problem. Now, you would never say that to somebody who's suffering from cancer. Well, if you did, you're, you're kind of a jerk. So, I sincerely say that. It's not nice to say those things. You know, but could you ever say that to Jesus? I mean, you would say that to Jesus, right? So don't say that to other people. So I think this is something helpful for us, is that we, when we see these things, we might have a tendency, I mean, uh, when we read about these things in the Bible, we might have a tendency to kind of Interpret the, pain, interpret the pain away. Um, but we have to accept that pain and that suffering as real 
but at the same time interpret it through this hopeful lens of faith. Okay, that's yeah, I get mixed up. All right, here we go. Oh, the structure. So if you take a look, I uh, have three verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 22 is the introduction. And then 3 through 21a, which is not italicized, is the, is the complaining part. And then the last part, 21b through 31, right? 30? Yeah, 31. Uh, is italicized. And that is the response. So what we find out is that Psalm 22 is realistic, meaning, hey, I'm going to say these things to you. Um, you know, I cry day and night. You don't answer. I cry at nighttime, but I don't find any rest. Has anybody ever felt that way before? You should ask yourself. And then in verse 3, we have a yet. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So we have this confession of faith of what God has done. Our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out, rescued. So you're, you're hey, God, you've done this before for, for people. Okay? Um, and then in verse, I think it's 6 through 8, essentially. Yeah, 6 through 8, you have, again, I'm a, I'm a worm, I'm scorned, despised, I'm mocked. Um, you know, these are all, again, these are bad things happening. And then verse 9, yet, you're the one who took me from the womb, made me trust at my mother's breaths. You, you know, I cast all these wonderful, I mean, the, his confession of faith again. But in verse 11, it goes back to, don't be so far from me, trouble is near, there's none to help. Now, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. Now, that's kind of lost, I think, on a lot of us, right? I mean, I mean, unless you're a rancher, maybe, I don't know. But, I mean, that's kind of... Anyways, that's Old Testament language. What is Bashan? Bashan is a region or a place. Yeah, now, I, I, I didn't actually look that up, but, uh, so King David, it's a psalm of King David, so there has to be some connection between what happened to King David and this. Um, all right, now, the, the thing is, is they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, ravaging, ooh, I spelled that wrong, and a roaring lion. Uh, again, great, all this stuff, good stuff, I mean, in terms of, like, realistic things, I mean, dogs are encompassing me. Evildoers encircle me. So now we get it in verse 16. So the bulls and the animals, all these, these, these terrible things, what are they actually? They're a metaphor for a company of evildoers, the middle of verse 16. Now, we haven't made the full jump yet, but hopefully you're, you're thinking, hey, this is kind of like, this is like Jesus, right? So... I count all my bones. I mean, this is a long section. Some of us don't like to complain this long, right? I mean, it's verse 3 to 21. That's 18 verses of complaining. Yeah, maybe, maybe we bellyache to uh, people we shouldn't. Maybe that's the better way to say it. We don't like to... Okay. Um, and then in, in 21b, things change. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. So you have a call to praise. Um, or a vow to praise. And then at the very end, 
verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. So this guy is going to, the psalmist is going to, he's making this vow to praise, but not only that, when he is vindicated, vindicated, who else is going to join in the praise? All the earth. Yeah, well, yeah, everybody. The whole earth will... Yeah, oh, okay. So, so the, songs, the psalm of lament is like this realistic understanding of pain and suffering, real complaining about real things happening, and then there is this confession. When we see those confessions, we think, well, maybe he wasn't really suffering as bad as I was. Well, Jesus' crucifixion should wipe that away, that, that idea. Um, well, we'll get, yeah. So, okay, so the response uh, section at the end, uh, all the saving verbs in Hebrew are future tense. So this man, when he laments to God, he, 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 he knows it will, it will happen. And he's waiting now, waiting on the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. It's Psalm 40, which we read in today. Okay. All right, Matthew 27 now. Well, I, I, you're probably all, you know, hey, let's wait on, we can turn to Matthew 27 if you want, if you have a Bible. But needless to say, when the, the gospel writer said, well, first of all, when Jesus says these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's an old tradition that says that when he said those first words, he, in fact, confessed the whole thing. This is an old theory that, you know, uh, they don't have a lot of paper, so they don't write the full quotes, and they just would write the first sentence, or like the, the most popular word. So whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I think it's probably helpful because of the content of Psalm 22. So the gospel writer, here's Jesus says this, and he realizes now all of Psalm 22 actually is an interpretive tool to understand the crucifixion. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not simply only saying those words, but he's in fact praying the entire psalm. Which we see, and I put those in bold, there are, uh, those are kind of either direct quotes or allusions that are actually happening in Matthew. There's other Gospels which draw on Psalm 22, the Gospel of Mark specifically, that um, uses other, some of the other things. So like, for instance, verse 1, direct quote. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. We see that in the Gospel reading, right? They're wagging their heads. I don't know if you ever seen, you know, I didn't mention that. In some of the movies where we saw, you notice, uh, you, you go watch any crucifixion scenes in some of the movies. You see some guys like kind of, I've always thought that was weird. Until you read the Bible and you're like, Oh, wait, they're wagging their heads. I don't know if that's actually what it looked like, but... If they know Psalm 22, why do they say he's calling for Elijah? All right, that's a good question. Um, Eli, Eli, now, there are a couple theories. All right, so that's a good question. So, uh, yeah, probably Aramaic. So the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew, they don't exactly say the same thing. Eloi, Eloi. Versus Eli Eli. 
Um, Hebrew, Aramaic, um, and the writing's probably on purpose. So, meaning that there's probably some thematic reasons why they're different. The thing is, though, Eli, Eli, of course, Elijah, right? It's the first part of Elijah. So, why is he calling Elijah? Well, in Hebrew, you can say Elijah, but if with a with a breath, like a oh. So if you're struggling to breathe, so this is the theory. Jesus is struggling to breathe. Let's backtrack a little bit about crucifixions. Most of our scenes of, oh, I didn't hand these out. That's, um, let's uh, hand these out. This might be helpful for right now. Thanks. Uh, Jesus in the crucifixion is not like standing on a little platform with his hands nailed and his feet nailed. His his legs are bent. Now, so I, I, this is this is a great image. This is Nikolai Gay. He's a Ukrainian, early 20th century painter who got in a lot of trouble because his Jesuses were always too human. Trouble with who? with the church. Either it'd be the the Russian Orthodox. It's just too human, and you can kind of see why. He actually early twentieth century, so photography was available, and he often worked with photos. So he would set up a stage of thing, take a photo, and then work off the photo. For his crucifixion scene, he actually put himself on a cross and took a photo of himself, and that got out. And that uh, he, he was naked, which of course you know it's very scandalous. Obviously, Jesus isn't naked right there, but uh, he was though back in the old days. I mean, that's how that's how they crucify people. Well, it's interesting the guy next to him, how he's up. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll explain that in a second. But just look at Jesus's legs. This all goes back to the Elijah bit. Sorry. <laughs> so, in order for Jesus to speak or say anything, he will have to push up on his legs to speak. So Elijah is actually a lot Eli and a groan. So they mistook it. I mean, that, that's a theory behind it. The other thing was is that um, the Old Testament prophecy that Elijah would come before. Now, Jesus has said Elijah did come, right? John the Baptist is Elijah. But, of course, these people d- don't believe in John the Baptist, but they still know this prophecy. So they're thinking that he's calling Elijah, and Elijah will come and save him because he'll prepare the way before the Lord. So you have actually two competing views going on at the crucifixion. You have the Pharisees. I think we might have talked about this a little bit before, but in the Gospel of Luke, where like the crowds go from crucify to being quiet to beating their chests once he dies. In the Gospel of Matthew, you don't really have that, you don't have that progression. You have just Psalm 22, all the evildoers and the animals and the mockers and the people who are wagging their heads around him. But they have a perspective that will have this Old Testament prophecy that Elijah will come before the Messiah. Well, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah, so maybe he's calling Elijah, and they're like, hey, whoa, we're ready for a show. Let's wait and see if Elijah comes. Because then you'll be, you know, right? You saved others, why don't you save yourself? They still think coming off the cross is salvation, right? Of course, Jesus is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world, so they don't get it. 
So it's just another sign of how they don't get it. So that, those are the two theories. One is the fact that when he says Elijah, it's, it sound, I mean, when he says Eli, it sounds like Elijah. And then the other one is based on this Old Testament prophecy that Elijah will show up before um, the Messiah is revealed. Okay. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of Old Testament, there's a lot of fun, interesting allusions. So the whole point, though, is, is that as gospel, the, the Matthew gospel writer, when he sits down and he writes, he uses Psalm 22 as kind of the outline, as the interpretive tool to understand what's happening here. Of course, under Jesus' direction, right? Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. So from the cross, Jesus is praying, Psalm 22. That's very important for us to, to know. He's praying Psalm 22. So in the moment where Jesus feels most abandoned, what are the words coming out of his mouth? Scripture. This is very hard. So this is great for us, though, who suffer or are suffering when we have nothing to say. I've heard it said about the Psalms, the Psalms don't give you voice or uh, don't, don't help you how to articulate your feelings. They tell you how to feel. I think that's a great way of understanding. So Jesus turns towards the Psalms because it's the Psalms that can help make sense of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, have you ever had that in life where you are trying to make sense of what's going on? Why is this happening? What, you know, it's one thing after another, Lord. What is going on? And uh, you don't really have anything to say. But Jesus is very instructive for us because he turns to Psalm 22. And not only that, because in the Gospel of Luke, he turns to Psalm, not just Psalm 22, but Psalm 31. Into your hands I commend my spirit. So uh, I think that's really helpful for us to, to remember as we... Okay, so Gospel of Matthew, Psalm 22, that's going to help me understand what's going on based on Jesus' direction. And when I... I'm imagining myself being Matthew writing things down. Oh man, all these people around him, they're, they're mocking him, they're breaking it, you know, his bones weren't broken, but they're, uh, you know, they're out of joint. Whatever verse that was, I forgot. Um, so that's, that's helpful for us to, to remember. Um, so sometimes there's a tendency to read Psalm 22 through Matthew 27. When we just first read it, we're like, hey, this is about Jesus. This is true, but I encourage everybody to read it the other way first. Read, tw- Psalm, uh, read Matthew 27 through Psalm 22. And then that will help you understand what happens to Jesus. Because the author brings up a very interesting point. I don't know if you ever thought about it. But if Jesus is both God and man... Did God really abandon Jesus? And the author in the book says, no, right? Not to get too nerdy here, but there's one Christ, two natures, human and divine. And they are joined together in this, uh, I think he says the word, hypostatic hypostatic union, right? Okay, he does use that word, which is uh, kind of the technical term. Now, that, that union is a mystery. There's been people who try to explain it. But as I said to the men on the men's retreat, 
the more you talk about some of these mysteries, the more likely you're going to be a heretic. So, just a lot of heresies in the early church were just over-explanations or rationalizations. So, you know, uh, the, one, the one theory was like there are two boards glued together, kind of working, but, but they're still separate. Well, that's not quite right. Then there was this, like just kind of this mixed together. So you can't really tell the difference. Um, that's not quite right either. There's, there's two natures, but still in union. Then that means, though, so everything that the Lord Jesus does, both his divine and human nature, are working. Okay? And that's really helpful for us. Because, you know, some people said um, the divine nature was kind of like God pulled back his divine nature when Jesus cried this out. Why would that be wrong then? What does that mean to who Jesus is? Changes him. He's not like what he used to be. Um, and the reason why they did that was because, well, if he's divine, then he can't what? He can't suffer. He can't, he can't say those words. That, that kind of goes against who we think God is. But in fact, if that is who God is, then what sort of God is the my God in Psalm 21? He's a God that can actually know. Not only know, but feel. Feel this suffering. Experience this suffering. And I think the guy says in the, in the book, there is this, this kind of change now how we understand things. It's, it's not like, it's not like uh, God's nature changed, but it's, it's our, our experience of who God is now drastically changes. Holly. Yeah, so this is a good question. Um, so did, so the, the, the early church asked these questions. Did Jesus suffer on the cross? Did the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, suffer? Yes. Did God suffer? No. Did the Holy Spirit suffer? No. But through that relationship of the Trinity, then God know, like knows and, and can experience these things that we are. Or I shouldn't say can because he could. I mean, he's God, right? He can do whatever he wants. Um, but it put for us, it's for, for our understanding, for our salvation. Um, so that relationship between the Trinity does play into effect in the crucifixion. In, into, into, it like, uh, into an understanding of, of God relating to us. But the Father didn't suffer on the cross. The, the Father did not die for us. Only the Son died for us. The Holy Spirit did not die for us. Jesus died for us. So you have to maintain those distinctions. But at the same time, since they're in union with one another, they know and uh, relate to you. Barb. No, 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 I didn't say that. I, I said that God the Father did not suffer 
So that's different. That's different than saying that God doesn't, God the Father doesn't, doesn't feel. Um, because now you're talking about empathy. Um, now, the, the, the scripture doesn't really say too much about God the Father, though. This is why in the three articles of the Creed, the shortest one is the Father. And in fact, uh, Martin Luther, I have no other God than the God made flesh, and nor do I want another. Why would he say that? Yeah, the Son, that's exactly right. So our, our relationship to the Trinity, to God, is always through Jesus. Yes. That's very important for us to know. Because there's other religions who say we believe in the same God. But we don't relate to them. We don't relate to that God. Or, I mean, within their their faith, like Islam, they don't relate to God through through this relationship. It's through his attributes. And that's once removed. You don't actually have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with God's mercy. Okay, not to... Can switch, Julie. This is not to yes, good because that was a tangent. That wasn't related to anything. Yes. Yeah. I know it's peculiar, right? Yeah, page 46. That's right. Yeah, now, this is, uh, this is one of these things where, um, I, you know, I think, I mean, yeah, we, we actually, I mean, I think Christian, all Christians actually believe that. However, it is a point made in terms of the reality of what things are now. We can't really speculate what life was, you know, before we sinned. It's impossible. That's right, but um, again, this is, uh, this is always, it's always, I see this is why I always think it's interesting when we talk about heaven even too, or like, you know, before, before, before sin and after, you know, resurrection. It's because it's all speculation, I, you know. So, um, if the means of uh, so if the means in which we have relationship with God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then it's better than to be restored than to never having to be restored, or, or you know. But now, now we get into this is really heavy theological discussion. Now we get into uh, would this is one of the early church questions. Would Jesus still, would our relationship still be through the death and resurrection of Jesus if Adam and Eve did not sin? Yeah. 
This is why this is why I think it's a it's a it's a beautiful statement by the man. However, at the same time, I think it's a little bit speculative because it doesn't really help. I mean, again, I'm making it a little too simplistic. It doesn't really help us because we're all we're we're sinners. Like I can't imagine that is beyond my horizon of knowledge. And so it's behind everybody's. Yeah, this guy's yeah. So I, I think it's help. It's a pastoral statement. That, because one of the things was is that oh, Jesus came and died as a like an afterthought. Like it was a mistake he's correcting, and what that statement is saying is that there's no mistakes here. This is this is all according to what God has has already you know thought of divine plan. It was a good, so good job. Thank you for bringing that up. I think that's the simplest way to understand that statement. No, no, no. I, yeah, I think I th- what Catholic insofar as this is what all Christians should be believing. Like the Nicene Creed. You know, he's Catholic, so he likes to make those statements. That's fine. <laughs> we as Lutherans would say Catholic, small c. <laughs> that's right. Um yeah, no, actually, uh, uh, not to get, well, all right. I think it's a very powerful scene in a movie, so I'll just mention it. Andrei Rublev. It's a movie by Andrei Tarkovsky, my favorite director. Uh, Andrei Rublev was an, icon- an iconographer. He, he is the iconographer of the Orthodox Church. All, all icons are based on him, his way of doing it. So, kind of a big deal. Now, there's not much known about his life. So this, this kind of, it's not really a biography or biopic. It's, it's a historical fiction in a sense. There was a real person named Andrei Rublev who's an iconographer. And uh, the Holy Trinity, the icon of the Holy Trinity or the three visitors, that's his. And all subsequent icons are based on that. And uh, another, yeah, two other ones. Okay. Um, Anyways, he, he's, meeting, he's talking with uh, this other great iconographer, uh, Theophanes the Greek. And he's talking about the will of God. Because metaf- there's a metaphor going on here. Is him as an artist, his destiny as an artist. Like he, he tries to not be an artist or an iconographer. And he can't, as much as he tries not to be, he, he ends up being that way. So they're talking about God's will, and he, he, he speculates that those who crucified him loved Jesus. Now, the Greek, the, the other is like, you know, what are you talking about? He's like, well, if everything is within God's will, if everything happens according to the way God plans, then the Father sent Jesus to the cross. And those who helped him were fulfilling God's will. And subsequently, when you do God's will, you have, all right? I mean, this is what we all want to do, right? I mean, it's very speculative. Now, the Greek says, you know, you're going to be hung for that kind of stuff. But at the same time, yeah, it's something you've got to think about, right? I mean, wow, that's interesting. I think in the same vein as that statement about, you know, it's better to be restored than ever having to be restored. But it's, it's all speculative. We really just need to stick with what the Word says. God's Word. Yeah, Aaron. Well, I mean, you know, 
That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, yeah, so is God's will, is God's will good? So if you participate in something good, then are you doing a good thing? Logically right, we might have to say that, but of course Aaron's right. I mean, Aaron's is great. It's a good, good job drawing on Joseph. Is that God can, well, like he said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so this is, the, actually this is really good, Aaron. Thank you for bringing it up. The Psalm of Lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's all these evil things happening. But what does he really depend upon? This overarching goodness of who God is. And you see that in Joseph's statement. And you would see that in the, the reason why we call Friday what? Good Friday. I, I, you know, he didn't bring it up in the, the book, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I don't know if you ever asked yourself, why is, man, Good Friday, why do we call it good? Jesus died. It's sad. You know, as a kid, maybe you asked that question, or as an adult, I know I did. I don't know. Why do we call it good? It should be like Bad Friday. Jesus died. Well, I know, but it depends on how you see it, right? So the uh, um, anywho, but that that goes along to I think that's all analogous to what we just talked about. Okay, um, was there another question? Yes, the Lord's Supper. So uh, Good Friday. Okay, so yes, we had the Triduum. So at the end of Thursday, we don't have a benediction because the service is one big long service. From Monday, Thursday, all the way to Easter Vigil. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they don't, they don't celebrate the Lord's Supper on Friday. And I think, I think he said, like, because it's the one day that the bridegroom is taken away from the... the... Well, and so there's a, there's a couple traditions. So one is a very simplistic uh, communion, and you don't... Uh, yeah, you don't consecrate. He, he, you use the same stuff from Thursday. But during those three hours, you don't have the Lord's Supper. But so, like, on Friday morning here, although we've had debated, did we have the Lord's Supper? Did anybody come Friday morning? I don't remember. We do have it in the morning, right? Okay. We were debating whether to not have it because of this kind of tradition. But... The, the, the communion that's received on Friday morning is from Thursday night still. So we don't actually consecrate it. I mean, according to what this guy is saying. Because he says it, I don't know, what page is that? I have it written, I have it marked here. Hang on. Because he says we don't, uh, we don't do it, however, hang on. There we go. Oh, yeah, right here. So actually the bottom of 44. Uh, the reception of Holy Communion concludes the Good Friday liturgical service for which these three hours provide a suitable preparation. Still, there is no Mass. So that's kind of confusing, right? The reception of Holy Communion without Mass. It doesn't seem like it can work, right? Unless it is received 
from the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday. That's what that means. So, I, th- I think it's a very interesting tradition. I, I mean, I think it's good. I mean, that's what we should do. Is there any more to it? Like, anywhere, like what else do you want to say about it? Donna, you got something else? Um, yeah, I'm page uh, 45. Okay. John talks about the, uh, the once and for all sacrifice. Right. Okay. Um, that's right. Hebrews? Yeah, not the Father. Got to make sure we say that correctly. The Father, God the Son suffered, but God the Holy Spirit did not, yes. Okay. Right. Right. Relationship. Right. That's right. Yeah, reenactment, that's right. You're joining it. Yeah, so they, they'll talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. And, well, no, that's not, that's not quite entirely true. They, so Roman Catholics will... No, not entirely. So they sacrificed the Mass. Now, of course, Lutherans, we don't like the word sacrifice. That, that, that gives us hives. Um, but, but the reality is, is that Roman Catholics believe in, in Christ once for all, just like he wrote in the book. But in terms of the sacrifice, it is a representation. It's, it's bringing present. So, um, so there's the sacrificial nature. And, of course, Luther and the Babylonian captivity says the primary stance in the, in, in the Mass he uses that word, and our confessions use that word. It's okay to use the word mass. Is sacramental, not primarily sacrificial. So we see that actually. Now the thing is, though, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church has you know kind of changed since 1500. So, in fact, you see it even in the liturgical actions. So, in the morning Eucharist, are we sacrificial or sacramental as the celebrant celebrates the Lord's Supper? Our liturgical action. I, I'm being technical here. Are we standing in a sacrificial position or a sacramental position? It's sacrificial, actually. No, no, I'm talking about positions, liturgy, liturgical, not talking about dogmatics. When we stand facing the altar, not facing you, we are standing in a priestly stance, which is a sacrificial stance. Now, of course, we understand that what? Sacramentally. <laughs> Pretty funny, right? Now, Vatican II, so now you see all these churches, right, that took the altar from the back wall and put it forward so that we could what? Stand behind it and face the people, and that is a sacramental position. Is that what we have on Sunday morning? That's right. So we have both here at St. John. Because we like them. There's a sacrificial nature to the divine service. Absolutely is. I'm just talking about liturgical action, not dogmatic. We believe that as sacramental still, primarily, right? God coming down to us, divine service. That's what Lutherans like to call it primarily, not the Mass. We like call it the divine service, Godestines. Um, but that position itself is a priestly position.
Well, uh, well, first of all, if the kid ever asks, hey, why does Pastor stand there and not over there? Because uh, when I'm standing in front of the altar, I'm standing with people. I'm interceding for the people. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit, let us pray. That's one sentence. With your spirit, you are praying for us. So the pastor, the collect, collects all the people's prayers into one prayer and he prays for them. So that's a priestly, it's intercessory. So he, he stands there for the people, or for, for us, if I'm speaking to the kid. Oh yeah, pastor, he's standing there in place of us. He's praying for us. I know we're not saying the words, but that's our prayer too. Then, on the way back, well, why is he standing behind there? Well, he's speaking whose words? Christ's words to us. Oh, he's standing in the place of Jesus. One side he's standing in our place, the other is the place of Jesus. Now, sometimes, you know, when we stand off to the side and we're walking around, that might be a little confusing, but those two spots will. Because then you'll ask, well, why does he go over there and preach God's word, and then why is he lectern? But those are the two primary positions. One is the pastor standing in our stead, and then the other one is standing in the stead of Christ. Okay, I'm just talking liturgically speaking, why you stand there. I'm not talking dogmatically. Okay. Pretty crazy. Okay, another question. Yeah. Standing in the stead of Christ when you give absolution. That's right. That's right, but I'm facing the congregation. It's facing the congregation. That's what's most important there. Yeah. I was just primarily thinking about in the chancel. Because the service, so now, okay, since you asked, Carol. The service of corporate confession and absolution is a pre-service to the divine service. Those are three services, right? Service of the sac- confession and absolution, service of the word, service of the sacrament. And they all have their parts. So our danger is to lump them all together. But it's more than what I'm saying. That the, the, priestly, the, the, the priestly position and the... Right. So I, I, always call it, I always call it the sacrificial position and sacramental. It's just a very simple way of understanding it. Not just behind the No, 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 no. I'm just talking about, yeah, right, facing and behind. But I was thinking about the, the primary person, the primary place that when you stand priestly is before the altar. So, that's why I was making the altar bit. I wanted to say a couple of things about this real quick. Um, I believe Pastor Bruzek brought this up before. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I, I feel like he did. And to be honest, I haven't asked him, even though he's two doors down from me. So, um, this, I think, is a great image of Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, for a couple reasons. It confesses, well, first of all, the sign is falling off. I don't know if you noticed the sign is on the bottom of the floor. What else is falling off? His crown. So we're talking, you know, down in the dumps. Now, if you look behind him, though, what do you see? Someone leaving him. That's probably Jesus. That's Jesus. No. All right, now the thing is, though, some people will say that's like the father abandoning him or forsaking him. Based on what we talked about, why, why, would that, why can't that be the father? Or, I'm sorry, why can't that be the divine nature? Boy, I totally misspoke right there. See, it's so easy. 
Some people will say that's the, like the divine nature, like, you know, he's only suffering as a human. But, yeah, they're together. Now, how do you know they're together? What is shining on him? Light. But what's in the background? All right, of course, at this time, it's complete darkness, right? When he dies. But, of course, that makes a terrible picture. If it's just black. Well, that'd be that'd be a great modern picture, right? <laughs> Just black, and then say crucifixion. It's black. Well, it was black then. It's realistic. Um, no, the light is shining. So there is there is a uh, substance of light of div- divinity present in the midst of his forsakenness. Now the uh, on the on the right side is dismiss. Two weeks ago, I gave you an image of it's written, painted by the same man, same same head, different image. Jesus is right. He's looking at him. Left side of the page, Jesus's right hand. Jesus's right hand. Sorry, the one that's the one that's uh, has his head turned him. The other one has the head turned up. In agony. Despair. The one who, who does not turn towards Jesus is the one that's trying to make it, taking a breath. But I, I really like this painting because I, I think about it all the time. Because Jesus, look at Jesus' face. Oh, that's his, that's that's him. It's Jesus. He's dead. Jesus is dead. He's going to Sheol now. He's on his way to Sheol. No, that's his soul. Jesus is full body and soul, human body, human soul. He's going down to hell, like we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, First Peter chapter three. It says he goes to Gehenna. Not to get too technical, but the word hell rarely appears in the Bible. Hades, Gehenna, places of weeping and gnashing of teeth, fiery furnace, the lake of fire. So, just to throw that out there. So, yeah, Jesus goes to Gehenna, preaches to those. We can talk about my pet theory about all that some other time. Uh, so, yeah, this, this, I love this painting. It's very powerful. Yeah, First Peter three. It's uh, between eighteen and twenty-two. It's the baptismal section. Um, that's where we get he descended into hell. Also, it's a theological statement. Where did Jesus go and and uh, you know defeat the devil? I mean, he's got to go to the place where the devil is. Got to go there and kick butt. In fact, there's a I think the Passion of the Christ, right? When he dies, they have this image of like the guy, the the the, the devil, and it's like and the devil screams. Okay, not that you want to base your faith on the Passion of Christ, but the movie. All right, um, there's a lot of great things going on there, but it's 10:30. We should go. If you want to hang around and ask more liturgical questions, you're welcome to, because I like doing that. Let's pray.
Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. See ya.